I will chair this. <laughs> it's my pleasure that Bertrand Turner was able to come. He's from the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology and has published extensively uh, ethnographic work in Morocco, especially on dispute settlement and um, tourism in the law. So I'm very pleased that you could come. Uh, the title of today's paper is Local Dispute Management in Morocco and its Transnational Environment. Village communities in the Moroccan source between transnational legal standards of nature conservation and Islamic activism. So thanks again for coming and we're looking forward to your talk. Well, thank you for the invitation. Um, as I said to Lisbon when, when we had a phone call, I wasn't sure whether I'm really the right person to give a talk at an institute which has in its name the expression of extra legal. Uh, I am working in, uh, in, in a group where uh, it is in the title Legal Pluralism. So then I found out, although there are certain differences between these different mm. perspectives on, on the legal arena, there are some commonalities mm. we, we may share. And so maybe uh, my contribution today may serve an illustration uh, from our perspective how various uh, normative repertoires and legal institutions interact and depend on each other and what the legal agency of local actors constitutes in such a normative framework. The paper addresses the integration of local arenas of dispute management in their wider global environment. Taking the complex structure of plural legal configurations in rural Morocco as a point of departure, it is shown how transnational normative impacts from competitive agents affect local dispute management and are taken into consideration by local actors when local order is negotiated. The empirical data refers to the area of the Argan Forest in the Moroccan Sous, where development cooperation and nature conservation entail a rearrangement of the nomosphere by introducing transnational legal templates. At the same time, the region experienced increasing missionary work of transnationally operating Islamic activists who propagate a return to the basic of legal Islam as a solution and champion the strict compliance with their vision of Islamic law. Dealing with these challenges, local acts are helped to engage in processes of normative translation, hybridization, implementation and rejection. From that scenario, also the question arises to what extent or in what way local legal action taking place somewhere in the remotest part of rural Morocco may evoke repercussions at transnational scale. So, the radical point of departure of my consideration and thus the discourse on transnationalization of law in the era of globalization and the resulting challenge of how to address theoretically these developments. I should go to the machine sometimes. Press the button. So, my talk is simply structured into three steps a brief outline of the theoretical and analytical framing, an ethnographic description of the local setting and its legal configuration, followed by a concrete case study and some concluding remarks. For analytical reasons, the empirical data from Morocco is analyzed under three different perspectives, which reflect different but interconnected theoretical discourses. The problem, the one is the problem of conceptualization of scale. The second one, the analytical approach that offers the concept of legal pluralism. And finally, social movements. Scaling approach, or scale arrangements, is a concept that has been developed in political geography and adopted in social sciences. The concept of scale allows us to analyze interactive processes interlinking various levels, including the transference of scale-bound framings and issues. 
scales are not merely a natural metric, but are socially constructed, extended, interlinked, and rearranged. For example, a, a typical conflict over access to land, previously framed in terms of a competition at local scale, may be no longer or exclusively addressed in the language of kin relations, social rights and obligations, local power differentials, or retaliation. It may now be situated in a scala arrangement that draws on discourses of environmental protection, sustainability, gender equality, or civic responsibility, all of which, in turn, have their sources in transnational non-generation. Such an arrangement may, for instance, escalate violence and property relations, setting off repercussions that result in upscale. Local phenomena can, thereby, can be thereby inscribed into local configurations, and the same event may be differently addressed at various scales. Some examples of legal scala negotiations that affect rural areas around the globe include, for instance, migration law and labor law to meet the needs of the globalized labor market or as transnational reactions to local rural mobility, blocking or impeding access to external markets through import quotas, and another example of face-based normative interventions. The merging of such ingredients as in different ratios reshapes social relations in a given rural area. Networks transcend scala divides and recast local issues as global concerns to a worldwide audience and vice versa. Local actors, for example, are confronted with issues such as global climate change, the framing of rural resources as an integral part of world cultural heritage. On the other hand, the struggles of local actors can be taken up into global discourse as with food security becoming a form of human rights. Second point, the concept of legal pluralism offers the second analytical approach. To make it very brief, one may summarize it the following way. Most contemporary legal systems in developing countries and post-industrialized states contain parallel and often contradictory regulations of social, economic, and political organization. These are based on different types of legitimation, international law, state law, religious law, customary law, and forms of self-regulation. This type of legal complexity is called legal pluralism. In a comparative perspective, the concept of legal pluralism helps analyzing and explaining how different constellations of normative repertoires are generated and maintained. The focus is in particular directed on the mutual interdependencies between various repertoires. In my presentation today, special attention is paid to the role of religion and religious law in such a plural legal constellation in connection with transnational dimensions of legal pluralism. Studying practices of dispute management in which different kinds of law are used, the, the research aims at generating insights into the circumstances under which constellations of legal pluralism contribute or, to or reduce legal insecurity and social and political conflict. My aim is thus to contribute to a better understanding of the constraining and enabling influences of plural legal orders on social interaction and the effects this has on power relations, social integrations, and social inequality. In addition, also an institutional pluralism informs the diverse strategies of actors involved who refer to forum shopping and strategically address various legal institutions. At the third strand, of the analytical apparatus towards theorizing offers the concept of social movements additional analytical fine-tuning. With reference to the data I present, 
presented, I would like to emphasize that I think it is important to make no categorical or typological distinction between rights-based or grassroots movements on the one hand and movements with our, uh, which are associated with political Islam on the other hand. The analysis, analysis of data shows how social movement theory may contribute to identify strategies of actors, for instance, acceptance of the state while criticizing corruption as distancing strategy and the taking up of the discourses on justice, mobilizing factors, and the processes and constraints of network building play here an important role. When looking at the prime concerns of Islamic activists in general, the dominant role of law is immediately apparent. Islamic concerns are expressed in the legal discourse, and the final request and ultimate aim remains the establishment of the rule of Islamic law. In social movement theory, this is subsumed under the notion of framing, constituting a third basic theoretical assumption beside resource mobilization theory and the conceptualization of opportunities and constraints. Islamic activists generate frames for accessing the social field they want to bring on the right path. Frames provide meaningful explanations, accentuating the need for intervention. In such cases, social conditions are often recognized as being highly problematic. In this concrete case, among other indications, the gap between legal practice and the religious doctrine provided fertile ground for the promotion or the implementation of Islamic law. Thus, the frame actually represents as a solution to the problem and is supposed to mobilize adherents and produce support. The social construction of meaning is decisive for the success, success of a movement that must attract the target group. So what is called framing resonance. When focusing on framing processes, one should point out that in the case reported here, the intervention of an additional party with a transnational background in the local constellation is point of departure rather than the emergence of an independent local organization modeled on a general construction plan for Islamic activity. Thus, in this case, there is no claim of cultural authenticity, but rather the frame itself is at bottom alien to the local field the movement is targeting. So, now I would like to give you a, a brief introduction into the, the area of my research and uh, into the plural legal constellation. So, I, uh, in, in the last moment, I decided to not show you boxes and arrows and overlapping circles, showing you some different ratios, so just some pictures, impressions of the region uh, by which I can explain a little bit what's going on there. So we are uh, in, in the, in the Sus plain, in the west, uh, the, the, the area east of Agadir, and the particularity of this region is uh, there is a worldwide unique ecosystem, uh, a forest composed by a particular tree called Argan tree, which is unique. Uh, uh, endemic, which means it's the only area in the world where you can find it. Uh, okay, and uh, because of this particularity, uh, the region has been uh, transformed into a, a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve in 1999. So this has a lot of legal consequences and transnational legal templates come in. At the same time, however, the same, very same forest is tradition, traditionally used by uh, local people, peasants, Fellahin, who, who are living in villages uh, in, in that forest. Here you see uh, 
how the forest is uh, used for cultivating barley during uh, the raining season. That is the same area, more or less the same perspective during the dry season. It is used as pasture. You can see the goats climbing up the, the trees here. Uh, and uh, also, by the way, also goats are lazy. Uh, not only human beings, they only climb up if they can't find any, uh, any pasture on the ground. So it's, it's a sign of scarcity, not a sign of uh, something. This is uh, another uh, issue. It's also pasture coming from camel, from camel that's coming from the south, which means it's a highly sensitive political uh, problem because those people coming from the south, uh, so there's the Western Sahara uh, uh, problem in the background, and for political reasons, uh, Sahrawi nomads enjoy a, a liberty of freedom. Uh, other ordinary citizens of uh, Morocco can only dream of, and this is uh, part of the story. At the same time, they are highly controlled. Uh, at the same time, uh, or in the meantime, the forest has also become uh, a place of, pro uh, of uh, cash crop production for the uh, global market. So the, the whole area has been transformed into a garden of Europe uh, during the French protectorate time in the 1940s, and uh, this cash crop production, production was going on until now. And in the meantime, so the, the areas of production, yeah, moved into the forest. Nowadays, you, you find irrigated cash crop production in the forest area itself, as you can see here, tomato fields. At the same time, again, another uh, quite important produce of, of that area, uh, argan oil. And oil produced from the fruits of that tree is nowadays promoted as a global eco-food uh, uh, yeah, around the world. 15 years ago, uh, I mean, 20 years ago I started research there, but I can assure you, 15 years ago, you couldn't find this oil somewhere else, just in that region. It used to be local staple food of Berber population there. Nowadays, you find it everywhere, in Oxford, everywhere, in, in, in organic shops. And uh, you may pay here around 100, 100, between 100 and 150 pounds for a liter. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's okay, but just to, uh, to let you know that, and this is uh, politically correct, produced in uh, women's uh, argan oil producing cooperatives, which are also a target of polemic of the, the, the Salafis, which are uh, also actors in my story today. So, just to illustrate a little bit legal pluralism, of course, there is state law. And of course, the state is present in that area. Here you see the local court in the northern center, and there are the offices of the Odul, and uh, there are, uh, and uh, the police office in town is quite recent, it has been uh, established in 2006, at least. So there is police, and there is at, in, in town, and there, there is a court, and so on, and it does reach also the, uh, the rural area. You see here to Pierre uh, which means, uh, district officer, those people also uh, intervene in local conflicts, they have to, they have to mediate land conflict and uh, so also state actors are involved, as I will also show in my case, but not only state actors. Uh, Islamic uh, experts are heavily involved in all kinds of, of legal matters and legal affairs, the key of, of, the, of the mosque who has a certain affiliation to the state, a certain affiliation, but also legal experts uh, who are 
uh, living in Sawaya, which means Islamic congregations. These gentlemen, for instance, are legal experts, and they, they intermediate, for instance, between the official sphere of Islamic law in Morocco, which the, the, the Islamic orientation, the legal orientation in Morocco is Malikiya. They have a deep knowledge of, of the uh, legal authority, but at the same time, they know all the, the variations of Islamic law, which uh, affects the countryside. Here is one, one example, just one of those examples. Isawa uh, is a Sufi brotherhood, uh, and which uh, they, they engage in trance dancing and praying and those things, but they also are involved in local dispute management. This is one of my most important informants there, uh, the gentleman Ulem. And here you can see uh, one of these uh, issues. It is a, a public uh, performance, a trance dancing performance of this uh, congregation. And for me, the most exciting uh, moments are when the music stops and the, the, the members of the, of the congregation start collecting almonds and so on. One may address those people and uh, voice their concerns, grievances, problems, disputes, whatever. And they uh, are bound to take care of that. And they will transform it into a kind of public speech and intervene in, in those conflicts. And uh, they're very smart in uh, how to do it. Sometimes they, even, they also work with kind of a coercive uh, curses and so on, not only with nice words. Uh, but uh, anyway, they are quite effective. Uh, another kind of mediator between now state law and uh, the variety of local law is the Hakim. Uh, a local expert and an, and an expert of, of local law, of customary law, uh, who is at the same time uh, a civil servant. And he somehow always tries to accommodate between state law and local law when people address him, particularly in cases of land disputes, and, uh, but also in, in other social issues. And, uh, to show you one of these local experts, that is one of the, those, those mediators from which I learned a lot. And also written documents play a role and link to a certain extent the, 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 the spheres of Islamic law, customary law, and uh, state law. So these uh, uh, legal documents are also uh, acknowledged by the state. Uh, they are written by, by the experts, for instance, a legal and uh, uh, Islamic scholar, because uh, local people are able to read and write. These are treaties and, and uh, other legal documents. And um, yeah, I shouldn't go too much into details here. Uh, transnational law. You see here the, the way how, how a biosphere reserve should be uh, divided into different zones. There is a core zone which should be 100% protected, uh, and the kind of uh, surrounding zone where where uh, sustainable use of resource is uh, followed, and the uh, and the second area. Another. Uh, Transnational legal impact is the UN Convention uh, to Combat desert Desertification. And just to give you some examples of many of these transnational impacts that uh, have an effect, legal effect also in the rural villages in that area. And uh, last but not least, the religious instructions for correct behavior, uh, Islamic movements, in this case the Salafia, is propagating in this area. 
So uh, now I should come to my uh, case study. And uh, should uh, briefly introduce the most important actors uh, involved. Here you see one of the most important actors, that is the police, the gendarmes, uh, the local court. This is the uh, mosque in the village where uh, the meetings uh, have taken place from which I will report now. Which means this is the meeting place of the village council. Um, in the case discussed in this paper, the informal village council uh, of a village in the Mitsus is the main actor in the local, uh, in local legal affairs. The council is understood locally to be the successor of the traditional former representative body of the village community. Today it falls into the category of local NGO according to transnational legal standards as well as to the Moroccan law of civil society structures. The institution itself is still called the Jama, which means a council. As an NGO and institution of rural, rural civil society, the, the council enjoys a certain connection to the official sphere and quasi-state recognition. The council is not, however, as in other cases, a result of the most recent transnational encouragements of development corporation, which has generally led to the creation of new village NGOs representing the organizational web of the civil society. The council in this case owes its transformation into a state-recognized entity uh, to the local self-administration of water supply, which the state demanded some 15 years ago. All families and households of the village send male representatives to the council. This includes local state representatives who link the informal council with the state administration. As well, the council is a powerful institution in terms of the financial means it has at its disposal. It is responsible for collecting contributions from every household for water and the maintenance of equipment. In addition, as virtually the only local functioning structure, it has accumulated many more duties and responsibilities in the course of time. For example, the institution controls the regular support payment for the religious infrastructure, the mosque and the key, the religious clerk. Furthermore, the council has taken over the neglected duties of the officially elected local representatives. The council organized, for instance, the distribution of state-subsidized staple food and decided on the proofs of entitlement. The council also acts as the institution where local disputes can, can be brought forward at village scale. In sum, all important decisions on village level are reached in the council and council negotiations. Decision-making by consensus is preferred. And the next main actor I have to present is the Salafia Islamic movement. For a period of several years, activists of the Islamic movement of the Salafia have won increasing influence in rural Morocco. I won't get, go into de details how, how that has taken place. Uh, just uh, what they did, their message consisted of a sort of incessant indoctrination about the correct way of leading one's life according to the Salafi interpretation of Islam, explaining how to find and to follow the right path. The missionizing is not only, not only took place during their meetings or during prayer in the houses of Quran and mosques, but was also evident in their giving their advice everywhere and to everybody. They pursued people on the street, explaining to men, for instance, that smoking was unacceptable, or to women, that wearing the veil and not looking at men would help them to find salvation. 
In short, Salafi activists intervened in all spheres of daily life and thus questioned the established boundaries between public and private life. The most successful mobilization strategy to attract new members, however, was the, the integration in their charity network. Now, the topic of the presentation is to demonstrate how the settlement of a local dispute is connected to the downscaling of various legal templates. It is shown how a simple local problem transforms through scaling processes into a test case for the regulation of a conflict in which all the actors mentioned above have become involved. It is a situation of competition between providers of different legal rationales and reflections. The case is con contextualized by the reassessment of the Argan forest as a resource. This process entailed the rearrangement of legal spaces and the normative orders connoted with them. It transforms of the, it, this transformation of the legal configuration of space provided the main actor, a moonshiner, with arguments he knew to use to his advantage. The conflict took place in summer 2002 in a village in the Mitsus region, when the movement had, had reached its peak and almost half of the villagers were adherents of the Salafia. In terms of the religious landscape, the village is located in a very special environment and has the status of a respected place. At the same time, it was known as a site of excellent illegal boost production. This moonshine, called Mahia, is a popular and traditional local drug in Arabic-speaking areas of the Sous Plain. There is also official state-monopolized, controlled uh, spirit production in Morocco, but this is expensive and the next official point of sale is located more than 45 kilometers away. There is a clear state political line restricting access to Masia, Mahia and alcoholic drinks in general for Moroccans in order to limit, to limit the negative social consequences of consumption and to accommodate state legislation to the religious dogma prohibiting alcohol consumption. Nevertheless, local moonshine distilleries are widespread and almost every rural district has several producers. Anyway, also a moonshine distiller uh, is bound to respect the local repertoire of rules, and the same is particularly true for his clients. And herein lies one of the underlying sources of tension. So as I said, uh, another actor in this case is the, was the informal village council, and that nearly half of the council members were Islamic activists at that time. Another smaller but influential group in the council were development brokers, which means local people who cooperated with transnational development agencies in various ways. Another important group of actors on, sta on stage uh, were mentioned state representatives, among them some unknown in high positions. The distiller recently started his enterprise as a sort of family business. His three adult sons contributed to the production, but the father bore all the responsibility. He was a former hashish dealer and had been imprisoned for some years for this reason. His enterprise was quite prosperous and his monthly income was probably the highest in the region. He was known for, for his sensational price performance ratio. He had a widespread customer base for his product, the village population included. A moonshine distiller is somehow part of local infrastructure, an institution one may need but not necessarily like, such the trader who grants credit or the grave digger. In this case, the distiller was a villager by origin, but nevertheless, he did not respect the local code in many respects. 
The most important point was the fact that he opened his door literally in the middle of the village, just near the mosque. However, a distiller should sell his product outside the village, otherwise insider-outsider distinctions are disturbed. Quite often the behavior of the distiller's clients was reason enough for villagers to have grievances against them, since they sometimes entered the village center already drunk. They even dare to address women in a zone where women and children are in Syria at least protected by the community and are assured comparative freedom of action. Furthermore, through the troubles they caused, the distiller's clients even provoked the gendarmes to enter the village, which is decidedly disliked. The general mood in the village was a reflection of the situation. The locale actually dedicated for a business such as moonshine sale is the forest, more precisely the no man's land which is situated between those forest areas where the villagers of neighboring villages have particular individual usufruct rights on plots in the forest. Out there applies another normative order. This area is out of civilization and there and here things are possible that should never take place within the precinct of the village. So, at the basis of the conflict referred to in the paper is a local spatial model of law, a map of the legal landscape which has been evaluated as a consequence of the hysteria in, uh, of, of yeah, how to make money with the army first. So. So because since Argamania has broken out, it was no longer possible for the moon China to attend his business in the forest. The forest rangers were no longer as indulgent as they used to be because they were now sponsored by the German Society for Technical Cooperation. Because of the integration uh, of the forest in the world economy, that I have said already why all these things happened so that's good. The forest was completely overcrowded and there was no confidentiality anymore. In some, the forest was a sheer pandemonium. In principle, the moonshine distiller was fine with this development because he had a good reason to conveniently, or conveniently organize his business now in the village. For a long time, the distiller was a thorn in the Salafines' flesh. They tried to take advantage of what was for them a favorable situation and started a campaign against the distiller using the strategy described above. They remonstrated with the distiller about his un-Islamic profession and demanded that he immediately close his business or at least move it out in the direction of the former retreat area of the forest. The distiller seemed unimpressed by such rhetoric. Even threatening to involve the police could not alarm him as he had very good relations with state representatives since, since he contributed his private share weekly and even provided them with special high-quality police liquor. Indeed, in response to these criticisms, the distiller even threatened to expand his business and ostentatiously started to talk about taking on a new partner. He understood his strategy as being directed against the Salafi's influence in general and started looking for allies. The Salafi requested that the council intervene. But although the members of the council frowned upon the grievances caused by the distiller, the non-Salafi among them were unwilling to invest in the project of stopping the moonshine production for three months. This would have meant investing money as well as submitting an official complaint to a higher level authority in the state hierarchy. Furthermore, the result would merely be the conviction of the perpetrator and a three-month stay in jail. Uh, this was the first fixed-time penalty for moonshine distillers, after which he would be back on the local scene. 
Furthermore, the development brokers in the council opposed any outplacement of the loose business into the forest. They in turn offered to inform the forest rangers against the moonshiner in such a case. There was also another reason behind the council's resistance. The delicate problem of how to assign priorities when the local set of values is challenged simultaneously by different actors required a more fundamental exchange of ideas. The non-Salafi fraction of the council initiated a discussion on how the established rules of the community could be defended against two different perpetrators, both acting against the local repertoire of rules, the moonshine distiller and the Salafi. It is interesting to note, by the way, that all of them actively took, took, part, took part in that debate. So all of them were members of the council. Since both the distiller and the, and the council proved their unwillingness to cooperate with the Islamic activists, the latter continued to obstruct the distiller's business. Everybody from the outside the village was suspected of being a Mahir consumer. Each and every customer of the distiller was the target of the activist's persecution. Customers were left unmolested until they had completed their purchase, then violently attacked. They were slapped in the face and the Mahir was confiscated and of course put away. Such aggression especially took place at night. For this reason, the distiller started accompanying his customers through the village. Attacking foreigners at night in the center of the village and even arresting them was actually accepted by the police and everybody else and was in accordance with the notions of village protection. But this rule was not applicable when a foreigner was accompanied by a villager. If the Salafi dared to attack his customers under these conditions, the distiller uh, would quickly throw away the mahir and accuse the activists of having intended to rob them. Often he claimed his customers were friends of the family or relatives. Furthermore, in some cases, the attacked persons were indeed villagers searching for booze rather than foreigners doing the same. This series of developments led to increasing tensions and intensified antagonistic tendencies in the community of the whole. With reference to this case, the majority of the, of the council expressed the opinion that the activities of the Salafi were more detrimental to local peace than those of the moonshine. The aggravation of the situation was, was accredited to their refusal to compromise. Following these developments, the Salafi extended their strategic activities and invested in an official complaint against the distiller without the agreement of the council. This was once more interpreted by the non-Salafi as an illegal act. The police came and arrested the distiller. When he saw the police coming, he asked whether they had not yet received enough rashua, bribe, uh, and cops that week. The gendarmes answered that they were not, uh, that they were there to arrest him and that they could do nothing for him because of an order from a superior's authority. They even admitted that they regretted very much the suspension of their earnings for three months and remonstrated with the moonshiner, saying that he had antagonized the whole village. The distiller reacted immediately, responding that he was not at loggerheads with the whole village and that he did not act alone, but with, a, with an associate. Quote, he is the muazzin, the person who calls to prayer, of the Salafia the younger brother of their sheikh who is working with me and providing me with figs and other things I need for distilling. He has a pickup and is working as a driver and deliverer for me." End quote. The policemen were delighted upon hearing this denunciation. They knew that the distiller would be back in three months. 
In the meantime, the denunciated activists would have to pay a lot for them to forget the distiller's accusation. On this point, as we shall see, they were mistaken. It is necessary to point out at this juncture that the police definitely did not sympathize with the Salafia. They willingly fulfilled their obligations and handcuffed the denounced man with pleasure. Indeed, they had to do so. Otherwise, they risked getting into trouble if the distiller repeated his denunciation before the judge and the policeman had no suspect to be summoned. In general, it is not always clear who will be able to profit from an arrest, the policeman or the judge. It depends on the tactic the accused chooses to take to, take to regain his freedom which path he expected to be cheaper, although the situation developed differently in this case. At this point, the Salafi were completely beside themselves, but steadfastly refused to resort to bribery. Instead, they demanded that the council intervene and bear the expense of regular defense. The majority of the council refused, arguing that the Salafi themselves had provoked the problem and were alone responsible for interfering without reason in community affairs and that the collective could not be held responsible for the case. Accordingly, there would be neither contribution of the council to the accomplices' defense and food support, nor a release festival at the expense of the village. The background, by the way, of this decision is the custom of the council uh, to contribute to the support of imprisoned villagers who are seen as being sentenced for actions in accordance with the local repertoire of rules, but in discordance with state law. In the meantime, families of these convicted villagers are protected and provided with essentials. The funding for this comes from the parallel administration and the water cash box reserves. In response, the Salafi leader started to collect money themselves among their adherents and hired an advocate to defend their brother. Using a regular defense, they tried to implicitly transform the trial into a platform for their harsh criticism of state corruptness. Accordingly, one problem in this context remained their refusal to pay for the service of the judge to close the proceedings according to the unofficial model of interaction with state agencies. The Salafi insisted on fighting against corruption and the affair resulted in a court hearing. Everybody in the village was aware that the whole episode was actually a joke and everybody was intent on attending the spectacle of seeing an Islamic activist appearing in court with his long beard and in his gandura in his traditional clothes and being accused of moonshine stealing. The Salafi mobilized about 100 witnesses asserting, asserting the accused innocence. They claimed that he was not involved in alcohol production and that he had never touched Mahir in his life and that his lifestyle was geared toward Islamic ideals. This was expressed, expressed with the underlying accusation that although alcohol consumption is prohibited according to Islamic rules, it is nevertheless tolerated to a certain extent by state law. They claimed that the moonshine distiller should be sentenced to the most severe punishment assigned for this offense according to Islamic law. But the distiller, to the greatest amusement of the audience, insisted on his accusations and always interrupted the intervening advocate, asking if he had been present and how he could know what he claimed to know, etc. So the, the suspected Muazin already saw himself as a martyr in jail. Nobody apart from his brothers was willing to give evidence in his favor. However, at the end of a long procedure, the judge decided in his favor and he was released while the distiller was sentenced to three months imprisonment. 
The judge did not avenge the obviously false renunciation, denunciation, although he could have done so. Furthermore, of great advantage for the distiller was the judge's decision to send him to the provincial capital, Tarudan, where the closest so-called high comfort jail has been constructed sometime, some time before, and not to Inusgan, the site of one of the most infamous prisons of the South. After the passing of sentence, the moonshiner announced in front of the judge his intention, intention to be back in three months and to continue and to even enlarge his business and to share the reservations of the, develop, of the development brokers against the business location in the forest for reasons of environmental protection. He promised to sell his mahir in front of the Salafi's house of Quran. Everybody, including the judge, burst, but not the Islamic activists, burst out laughing. In sum, the Salafi failed in their strategy of proving state-conformed behavior and criticizing state legislation and state connivance of some maybe not quite lawful local practices at the same time. A traditional release party was organized three months later. Usually, the local council is in charge on such occasions too, but this would have been too much in the case of the Moonshine Distiller. He was seen, according to the majority of opinions expressed in the council, as the victim and the perpetrator at the same time, and thus was not perceived as representing village interests and values against state or other external intervention. He himself splashed out and contributed a considerable quantity of his best mahia. The party was an occasion for excessive drinking and smoking. The moonshine distiller came to an arrangement with the council, promising to avoid the respected zone of the village on the condition that the Salafi did not harass him. If this was the case, he warned, he would, be, he would immediately react. His place of production remained in front of their mosque. So the actual customary process of dispute settlement took place after the release of the accused, since the verdict of the judge has no bearing on the local situation. There was no further communication between the moonshiner and the Salafi, only between the council and the village representation and So, what conclusions can be drawn from this example? Different constellations of conflict relations seem to play a role. There are local-local, local-state, local-Salafi, and state-Salafi relations to consider. It has been shown that for such a configuration, state, state law does play a role in local dispute, man, dispute management and that its interplay with other normative repertoires and its institutional setup is used by local actors for a variety of strategic considerations. On the one hand, rural people are well aware of state corruption and the very restricted room they have for maneuver when they are in conflict with particular representatives of the state legal system. On the other hand, however, local actors are used to manipulating state institutions for their own purposes in other contexts. In the dispute, the actors involved exhausted a whole repertoire of legal arguments, but also of tricks and tactics available to them. This struggle was a matter of interaction between formal and informal institutions and practices of conflict management. The council as an informal legal village institution, the police and the state court, the state institutions, etc. In the background, what the felt necessity to renegotiate legal room for maneuvering under changing social legal conditions. The Salafia strategy was to improve their level of conformity with official state attitudes rather than to accept actual practice. They tried to make the state intervene in local affairs in order to defend Islamic values against diverged local custom. At the same time, they insisted on investing huge sums 
in employing an advocate instead of paying the designated customary sum for making the judge well disposed to their case. As a result, they were taken for a ride by both the local adversaries and the state representatives. The project of approving and institutionalizing Islamic notions of order and capacities for conflict management through formal adjudication has failed. The intended transformation of the legal arena was thus, in this regard, a generated frame. The, the Salafia adherents were convinced that prevailing legal insecurity and the gap they identified between legally and religiously tolerated ways of life would motivate a great many people to join the activists. This gap approach emphasized the incompatibility of one specific and unmodifiable blueprint on Islamic model of correct human behavior claiming universal validity on the one hand with a variety of life models which correspond with a plural legal repertoire on the other. This implicitly reveals how far Salafi activists underestimated or even ignored the manifold mutual references between the religious legal sphere and differing local social cultural environments. François Dugas emphasizes the trap of cultural and legal clothing which accompanies the framing process and outlines the paradoxical effects, effects which go along with the implementation of universal doctrines. As can be shown, this inevitably leads to the process through processes of modification, whether controlled and conscious or unconscious, and which are even unsusceptible, unsusceptible to, correct, to corrective action. In sum, the case reveals how transnational normative intervention, the legal framing of sustainability and nature conservation and the implementation of a religious legal register contribute to more complexity of the normosphere, a complexity that entails a reassessment of legal identity and social cohesion instead of the expected homogenization or standardization of normative practice. As a consequence, transnational standards, which are supposed to generate identical results in the most diverse social environments, transform and adapt to local conditions. So, in combination with the analytical tool of legal pluralism and the reference to social movement theory, the reference to scale allows for the identification of scale arrangements within the nomosphere where transnational legal impacts with other normative registers interact. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was uh, fascinating. We